Hello, I'm Adam Levy, and this is the first in a special three-part podcast series from the BMJ. In today's episode, community and connectedness during adolescence. This podcast is part of a collection on adolescent health and well-being, supported by the Fondation Botnar and PMNCH, the Partnership for Maternal, Newborn and Child Health. This collection features papers covering the full spectrum of the issues young people face. And in this podcast series, we're looking at what's unique about adolescence from a social perspective, why this age group is so often overlooked, and what we can do to lift up young people wherever or however they live. We're reflecting that knowledge and understanding through conversations with experts as well as with young people themselves. In today's episode, how community and connection shape our lives. When I was a teenager growing up as an LGBT boy, it was uh, really very difficult. I grew up in a little town. so. Nobody talks about it, even nowadays, you will be uh, bullied by my other kids. We're essentially talking about a sense of feeling cared for, supported, belonging, and closeness with others. And these are things that for children and adolescents mainly come from protective and sustained relationships within their families, schools, communities. This is adolescent health specialist Joanna Lai, who's based at UNICEF. And before her, you heard from Ulises Ariel Belez Gauner, co founder of the organization Transmitiendo Diversidad in Argentina. More on that in a moment. Connectedness is important not only for promoting their health and the, their well being, but also protecting or serving as a buffer against risks when they do face them. Specifically, we know that having a supportive social network of parents, peers, and teachers very much improves adolescent mental and behavioral health outcomes. But the benefits of community during adolescence aren't just limited to our teenage years, as we'll learn throughout this episode. We also see that connectedness in the adolescent years yields benefits into adulthood. For example, a national study of adolescent health that was done over time in the United States found that those who reported feeling connected to home or school when they were between the age of 12 and 17 were as much as 66% less likely to take risk behaviors related to sexual health, substance use, violence, and to have better mental health in adulthood compared to their peers who were less connected. So connectedness is really important for well-being of adolescents in their lives now and also throughout the rest of their lives. We'll hear more from Joanna later in this podcast. But for Ulises, despite the importance of connection when they were a teenager, this community was hard to find. When I was a teenager, we, it, it didn't exist as something as an LGBT group. So I created when I was uh, 17 years old. We just want to be listened and helping each other. We never believed that we create something really big. What started as a social group for mutual support grew into an organization in two cities, reaching hundreds of young people. And its scope surprises even Ulises themselves 
wow well it's a wow <laughs> it's a very very old uh, eight years old I, I can't believe it I never I never thought that we were so <laughs> Uli says, who uses all pronouns, knows from her own adolescence how important this is. They need to be listened, they need to be with someone who can understand. When we were teenagers, we didn't have someone who, who listened to us. So we know how important it is for younger people to talk to an adult and explaining what it's happening on his mind or her mind or their mind and we can talk about that it's not something weird that you like someone uh, of your same sex or maybe you feel uh, different from your identity and that's not something bad I really know and I'm completely sure that it is very important because I know that they need these spaces of course, connection is important throughout our lives, from childhood all the way up to old age. But as we'll learn throughout this episode, community has a unique role during these formative years. When we were teenagers, we are uh, trying to find ourselves. Um, so we all the time are asking um, what I like it, uh, who I am, or um, how I would like to be in teenagers, it's very important that they have spaces where they can ask the questions that they need. Uli says his project has reached out to young people in schools, leveraging their community to provide crucial support for adolescents, whether that's through education on violence in relationships or through education and testing on sexual health. We help with uh, sexual transmitting infections uh, that they could have. We go with them to the hospitals because they need uh, to be uh, supported. So we try to be there for them when they need it. For Uli says, it has been invaluable to create this community that he was lacking during adolescence for young people who too often are alienated from those around them. We help the people that need to be helped. That made me feel very proud of all of our work. It's hard, but it's very beautiful. That was Uli says Ariel Belez Gauner, who I spoke to a few months ago. And actually, I called her back recently after the elections in Argentina, and she shared her feelings about how the new political landscape could set back LGBTQ plus community in the country. They do not believe in our community. They do not care our community. They believe that gay marriage it is not necessary. We are in a very difficult moment now because we don't know what will happen to us. Now we had a president that does not care about us and people who work for them does not care. Even they say that they want to kill us. We stay quiet. We do not move anymore. We, we do not talk to people, talk to teenagers. We do not do our work as a people from community. We need to do this work. 
The lessons from Ulysses' story will be expanded on throughout this podcast episode as we delve into the importance of community and connectedness during adolescence. We'll be speaking with experts on the topic, as well as finding out the immense value that organisations and adolescents gain by bringing communities of young people to the front and centre. We'll hear again from Joanna Lai, and I'm also joined by Flavia Bustreo of the Fondation Botnar, Richard Mawuto Jekunu of the Yield Hub, and Shailani Palihawadana of Young Experts Tech for Health. This is the first of a three-part mini-series delving deep into the topic of adolescent well-being, with the other episodes focusing on health and education. And this series ties in with a special collection of papers on the topic, published in the BMJ last year, and spanning the range of adolescent well-being. Our first interviewee, Flavia Bustreo, made clear that our social, health and educational well-beings aren't separate entities, but are in fact deeply interlinked. Flavia is the vice president of the board of the Fondation Botnar. And we are especially focused on adolescents' well-being, looking at the aspects of well-being that relate to connectedness, the safe environment where adolescents live, and also actions that promote agency and resilience of adolescents and young people. We are a recently established foundation in the Swiss domain, um, five years young, so not even an adolescent ourselves. Flavia's expertise on adolescent well-being makes her uniquely placed to assess the particular problems facing adolescents. So we started off by discussing whether these problems are receiving the attention and the investment that they need. Well, I don't think yet. Currently in the world, there are different players that have acknowledged and recognised the importance of adolescent health. But we are still finding that for many governments, this is not a priority. And also we are still finding that the policymakers, especially after COVID, have very many competing priorities on their agenda. And therefore, adolescents' well-being is falling through the cracks. Until 2017, even the World Health Organization did not really focus on adolescent health because compared to other age groups, for example, the young children, children under five and the adults, they were considered well. Uh, So this is something that we are seeing increasing studying and research but not yet priorities at the level of investment that would be required. Given that adolescence is such a pivotal transition period in someone's life, why is it that this area of our well-being, of our health, has been overlooked for so long? If you have an analysis that is driven by mortality alone, then the figure of mortality, they were not as high as mortality in the first five years, for example. Number two is also that, for example, the health sector, the education sector, they were not equipped with the knowledge and the kind of services. For example, currently, the significant need for mental health services 
we are still seeing that the quote-unquote friendliness of those services for adolescent and young people is not there. Now, within bodies that do recognize the importance of adolescent well-being, how much focus is there on social well-being, on connectedness for adolescents? I would say that the COVID-19 pandemic has shone a light uh, that really made people understand the closures of school that also was associated with the lockdown, the mobility, the restriction that was in many, many countries. All of these aspects, they have enhanced the social exclusion, the mental distress of adolescents and young people. This is an area where it's absolutely important to look at how adolescents connect with each other, what are the safety uh, environment where they can connect. And also one additional element that I would add is that there is being recognition of the importance of the digital connectedness that adolescents have. Now, some people are born in an environment where they have easy access to nurturing social networks. But many other people, for example, neurodivergent people, people with physical disabilities, LGBTQ plus people, have to go to, to much greater lengths, potentially, to find their communities. What do we know about ensuring that these people can also find the support they need from networks? In addition to having a situation where adolescence well-being is not a priority in general, we also see that among the adolescent population, there are particular groups that are more heavily discriminated. For example, adolescents that are migrating, that are refugees. And of course, I also add adolescents with different disabilities, both mental disabilities and physical disabilities. So it's important, number one, that there is awareness and I think it's important that there is a human right-based approach. Because when you start with a human right-based approach, you understand and governments understand that every individual has the same rights. It becomes very clear how the different sectoral response should be non-discriminatory to begin with and also adjust and adapt to the needs of uh, special groups of adolescents. You refer to LGBTQ+. Unfortunately, in many countries in the world, there are still laws that classify homosexuality as illegal, that ban it, that persecute and arrest uh, adolescent and young people uh, that are homosexual or that are LGBTQ+. To what extent is adolescent well-being influenced, among many other variables, by a young person's gender? That's an important question. We know that there are important differences whether we are looking at an adolescent boy or an adolescent girl. And for an adolescent girl, there are still many elements that put her at a disadvantage. Uh, in many countries, the law... Uh, for example, still allows child marriage. That also means uh, she will probably be more likely to complete her studies and not continue her studies. And therefore, she will have far less 
agency and resilience in our life to be able to conduct an independent life. In addition, uh, we also see that in many countries of the world, education and the completion of education is far less for girls. And then finally, there is a big gap when it comes to reproductive health that penalizes adolescent girls. All these factors contribute to a clear disadvantage that adolescent girls have. We're talking here about adolescents and their well-being, but how much does what we're talking about here matter for the rest of someone's life, the path they go on from adolescence onwards? We have currently 1.2 billion adolescents in the world. So that's the first reason why it matters, the size of the population. But there is also what we call an intergenerational effect of investing in adolescent health and well-being. Adolescents and children, even if they are just witnessing violence, for example, if they are witnessing domestic violence, they are more likely to become perpetrator if they are male adolescents and they are more likely to become victims if they are adolescent girls. So there is this intergenerational virtuous uh, cycle that we can achieve if we invest in adolescents' well-being. That was Flavia Bustreo. And actually, the world's adolescent population is still growing. The figure now stands at 1.3 billion. We'll hear more from Flavia in a bit. And still to come, an adolescent health specialist shares with us exactly what connection means to young people and what we can do to protect adolescents without stifling their exploration and growth. As mentioned at the start of the episode, this podcast is part of a collection on adolescent health and well-being, supported by the Fondation Botnar and the Partnership for Maternal, Newborn and Child Health, PMNCH. And recently, PMNCH convened the Global Forum for Adolescents, part of the 1.8 Young People for Change campaign, with thousands participating and over 1 million engaging and creating real impact. There were more than 120 national events in support of the campaign and forum and the What Young People Want initiative, advocating for adolescent health and well-being. The global forum culminated with the launch of the Agenda for Action for Adolescents, which sets a course for governments and stakeholders from all sectors to ensure their policies and programs are truly meaningful for young people. Visit 1.8.org, that's 1.8.org, to learn more about the Agenda for Action for Adolescents and commitments to adolescent health and well-being. And just as this event brought young people to the foreground, it's important that organisations and institutions foster community and connection for young people especially when those organizations are fighting for the health and rights of young people themselves. Well, our next two guests shared their perspectives on precisely this. The first is Richard Mawutojikunu of the Yield Hub. So the Yield Hub basically started as a research project working in the field of adolescent sexual and reproductive health rights. And the next step was what happens after this research? How do we move this forward to make sure that some of the issues identified in this research are actually addressed. 
And so that was when the Yield Initiative or the Yield Hub was born. We are using a specific approach called action learning to facilitate conversations among, you know, young people, among international NGOs, among implementers, donors, researchers, working in the field of adolescent youth sexual and productive health and right. We want to promote youth partnership. And for us, partnership means that it has to be something that is equitable, mutually respectful and beneficial to young people as well as actors who work with young people. The Yield Hub aims to do this by connecting young people with networks around the world, building a strong community within the organisation. In terms of location, it's it's global, but as much as possible, we try to make sure that there is equal representation, both geographically when it comes to also inclusion of you know young people, uh, INGOs, women. We try to have that balance within the group. We are forming a community where young people can find an authentic voice and be able to come up with their own solutions to some of those challenges. Because as of now, we don't have a lot of those spaces. There is no space to also talk about what has not worked and how can young people also, you know, take back the power and begin to renegotiate what partnership means to them. Also speaking to us about her experiences of community within an organisation is Shailani Palihawadana of Young Experts Tech for Health, also known as Yet4H. So we are a collective of young people. We are working on digital health and how digital health and the virtual world can be used to make sure that everyone has equal access to healthcare. So why is the young part of Young Experts Tech for Health such a vital part of this collective? Young people play a major role in driving forward changes of this nature. They are more adaptable and they are more receptive to changes, especially with regard to digitalization and usage of digital tools. And as the next generation who will be taking over, we think it's very important that we highlight the special role, the distinct role that young people have in this course. For Shailani, she was drawn to this work when she gave youth-led organisations a shot during her undergraduate degree. This opened her eyes to the unique needs and community of certain groups. Then I stumbled upon to one of their projects with the deaf community in Sri Lanka, who rely a lot on digital tools for the basic communications with people who are not belonging to the deaf community. So in the process, I realized how important digital tools can be to some groups of people, some communities than others. There's so much more to learn and so much more things that I can learn from the practices around the world. So that's how I stumbled upon uh, it for it. Richard, on the other hand, began his trajectory by becoming a child rights activist in Ghana, where he grew up. I was exposed to different communities in Ghana where I realized that not all young people were enjoying their rights. For example, there were young people who were denied access to, you know, reproductive health services, especially when it came to the issue of even safe abortion services. I I saw at first hand how young girls lost their lives because they used unsafe means. And this really uh, touched me in different ways to realize that we could do a lot But then also we needed more young people's voices to speak up for young people. And that is when I I did actively become, let's say, a a youth advocate. That's what also led me to join the Yield Hub. 
Community isn't just important within organizations like the Yield Hub. What the Yield Hub fights for, sexual rights and health of young people, also has a profound impact on community. A lot of times when we are looking at what encompasses sexual health, we also look at, you know, what, what a young person in terms of their bodies, how do they feel, how comfortable are they, how can they express, uh, you know, themselves. And we see how a lot of this also impacts a young person socially, whether in, in the school environment or whether in, in the community environment, they affect them. Because if as a young person, I'm not able to have access to my sexual reproductive health needs, then socially, I also feel excluded. I think of the time when I was in you know, primary school, when some girls did not have access to you know, proper sanitary materials. So this impacts their, their social interaction, whether within the school environment or even the ability to benefit from schoolwork. Some of them do stay out of school. So we see that there is a connection. It's just not about you know, the sexual health. It's also about the social well-being of the individual, which is very, very important. For both Shailani and for Richard, working in their respective organisations has had a profound impact on both their professional and personal lives. My eyes are open now to a lot of unique issues that are unique like in two different areas in the world. For example, in another area, a problem that is across the board is more exacerbated due to something like maybe a social a factor like caste or you know infrastructure we have people from all regions of the world like in a personal level it has been really interesting to see different languages cultures habits and how different you know traditions of all of uh, the members in the cohort and also how they approach problems and the solutions that they have found it has been really interesting I would say it's been one of the most fulfilling uh, roles I have had. And I say this because a lot of time there are different initiatives that serve young people or seems to seek to, you know, work with young people. But when those projects end or when implementation is over, you ask yourself, what were the benefits to those young people? Could, could we see that a young people meaningfully benefited from a project? The, were they respected during the project implementation? Were they compensated? And we see that in a lot of projects, it's not the case. And that is why we are still finding the gap of not having a lot of young people as leaders within the field. And so for the Youth Hub, I'm really happy that uh, we are providing the space where we are addressing a lot of these challenges that we all know about, but it seems everybody thinks that we cannot do much about them, especially when it comes to the issue of you know compensating young people. There are so many organizations who are giving out million dollars grant, and yet they will not even provide just, let's say, a 10 USD or a 20 USD for a young person just to be able to afford to be able to be on the internet to attend their own webinar. Support, social and financial, is essential for young people to flourish in organisations. And support has always been essential to Richard, including when he was a teenager himself. Roles of communities and connections played a very important role in my life because communities where we came from, and I talk about where I live, where people were open to support young people like me, that emboldened me to be able to speak up for other young people. In Ghana, I remember one time I was in school, a teacher did something which was, let's say, in the form of a physical abuse to another student. 
And I stood up in the class and told that teacher, this is wrong. It is against the United Nations Convention on the Right of the Child. But I did that because I felt safe in the school. I knew that there were other teachers who knew that I was a child rights advocate. And so they would also protect and keep me safe. We always tell young people, go out there and advocate, go out there and demand your right, fight for your right. But we also forget that society is not always safe for young people. And so we need more safety net for also young people. It's not enough to say we should just go out there. We always forget how important it is for young people's mental health when we are putting them on platforms, when we are putting them out there to speak for themselves, they are right. We do not also acknowledge the impact that it has on them. Again, that is where we come back to the community. And so we need a community of support. We need different, you know, mental health resources that can also help these young people. And a strong sense of community within the structure of organisations has enabled Richard to build a meaningful career through which he can fight for the sexual rights and health of young people. As a young professional now, I am in this space because I am the product of different organisations respecting my right, different organisations making sure they provided a safe space for me, different organizations making sure that they meaningfully engaged me and compensated me for my work. They saw me as someone who can become a leader in the field and invested in me. So this could be the same for every other young person out there. You just have to do the right things, invest in young people. Don't just see them as your project implementers. See them as future leaders and invest in them beyond project implementation. Build your capacities, be there for them, protect their mental health space, and basically make sure that you are on a journey with the young people you are working with. Shailani has found her work with Young Experts Tech for Health invaluable and would encourage other young people, whatever their background, to consider working with organisations like Yet4H. First, to engage with organisations like that with a more open-minded approach. So it's very important for us that young people engage. And if you give the chance to an organization like us, be a little bit more open-minded in getting to know the kind of work that they do. Like, I promise you, it will surprise you in a pleasant way. That was Shailani Palihawadana, and before her, Richard Mawuto Jikunu. Shailani and Richard highlighted the various kinds of connections that young people can have with each other, with their peers, adults, local, international, professional, and personal. But the way young people form connections is changing as the way the world is connected changes. Digital and online spaces no longer just facilitate our in-person connections, often they provide community themselves. Back to Flavia Bestreo of the Fondation Botnar. It is very important to look at uh, how adolescents connect with each other because in many ways there has been a transformation of the social interactions and the social values. And uh, the digital spaces have transformed the way that adolescents interact with each other, the way that friendship are established, the way that communication, for example, about their own health, about nutrition, about sexuality, all these elements of connectivity, they are mediated through digital spaces and often also artificial intelligence. We still 
uh, are studying what is the impact of this way of connecting with each other on adolescents' uh, well-being and adolescent mental health. But also there is what we call the dark side of digital connectedness and in particularly what we call uh, cyber violence or technology facilitated violence. We see, for example, that during the pandemic and after the pandemic, there has been an increase on technology facilitated violence across age groups, but especially among adolescents. And this is a very, very worrying sign and signal. This violence against this particular age group is kind of falling through the cracks because historically we had a very strong field of researchers and initiatives that were addressed to violence against women. Also a strong uh, focus of work on violence against children. But the studies on uh, violence against adolescents, they are far less. And also the solution is significantly less. Given the tension between these different forces, the, the potential connections that come from, from digital spheres, as well as the potential threats, how do we begin to balance these out and protect young people while also enabling them to have the benefits that networking from digital spaces can provide? So here is where we believe that uh, we need to have uh, intersectorial approaches. Clearly, it's very important the role of the health sector to provide mental health services that are adolescent friendly. And let's not forget the suicide is one of the major causes of death in the population of adolescents. So the intersectoral approach includes health, also includes education sector, because clearly an education that includes aspects of well-being, that includes the self-awareness of adolescents, provides comprehensive sexuality education, especially in this era where we have seen a trend towards the uh, surpassing the traditional binary division of gender and where we see an increased fluidity of uh, gender identities. And also, I should say that one sector that is very, very important to work is the sector of the environment, because we see that there is a clear signal that the climate change has generated significant anxiety for the future. And in fact, the impact on young people's mental well-being of climate change has been acknowledged in the most recent Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change report, which came out last year. In the BNJ collection, we also have a paper that is really expanding and looking at how climate change impacts each of the domains of adolescents' well-being. Just how interconnected are these various dimensions of well-being? We're talking here about social well-being, but there's also the role of schools in nutrition, combating violence against adolescents, the connection between health and education, and young people's agency for their own health. If we want to have a world where we maximize adolescents' well-being, 
This is a world where the different sectors are better connected than they currently are. Those silos and those barriers need to be broken down. And in addition to that, I would also say that we need to look at how we can better measure this. And this is also subject of another paper that I recommend to the reader to look at, which is in the BMJ collection of adolescents well-being, which is really addressing how can we advance the measurement of adolescents well-being. Flavia Bustreo there. Flavia mentioned a couple of the letters published in the BMJ special collection on adolescents, and the collection covers all aspects of adolescent well-being, including many of the topics touched on in today's episode, such as disability and identity. To read them and much more on all aspects of adolescent well-being, search for BMJ Adolescent Well-Being or follow the links in the podcast notes. So how can every aspect of society support the connections young people make? What are the factors that hold young people back from finding their community? And can the digital world, with its apparently constant connection, be a double-edged sword? Well, our last interviewee is here to answer those questions. Joanna Lai is an adolescent health specialist with UNICEF, the United Nations Children's Fund. I started off my conversation with Joanna by asking her about UNICEF's role in adolescent well-being. The work we do at UNICEF headquarters within the adolescent uh, school and mental health team is really to stay aware of what are the the key and challenging issues that young people face. So we work a lot with research partners, academics, uh, young people themselves. So we have this understanding that connectedness is a crucial aspect of well-being, but how has connectedness shifted in the last years or decades as our lives have become increasingly digitalized? Most of us, I think, experience firsthand how digital technology has and continues to change our day-to-day life, right? How we connect with others, who it is that we're interacting with, how we're interacting, how often, um, for how long we interact. So the effect of digital connections on adolescents we see have both negative and positive sides to the story. And a lot of it depends on what technologies and platforms they use, how often more and more uh, adolescents are connected uh, digitally and digital technology increasingly gives them that potential for almost you know, continuous connectivity. But yet at the same time, what we're observing are rising rates of loneliness among them. So it's not just about an individual's utilization interaction on a personal level, um, but also the group dynamic aspect, fear of missing out, comparison to others, peer violence or cyberbullying, all of that comes into play to affect um, adolescents in particular. How do we then begin to balance these two forces, the, the connections that adolescents might be able to, to achieve through a digital space with these risks and with the fact that that doesn't actually seem to be aiding when it comes to something quite fundamental, which is one's feeling of connectedness, one's loneliness. During adolescence, developing independence and skills to make their own decisions and set their own limits are really important tasks for this phase of life. 
They need this ability to be successful and thriving now and also when they become adults. And for these skills to be developed, caregivers and other supportive adults in their lives can be thoughtful and intentional about creating opportunities for them to make decisions and learn to set their own limits. Um, at the same time, we also know that as an adolescent brain is developing, their decision-making often relies on the part of the brain that is more emotional, less rational. So guidance from caregivers and adults can be really beneficial in helping them learn how to assess what might be harmful or unsafe. When we apply this thinking to any activities involving digital technology, it can feel challenging because there's so much that we, we don't know what's out there and what an adolescent might come across. But as a first step, it's really important and we can gather information with the adolescent about what platforms they're on, what they're doing there, who they're with, to together determine what kind of risks and what kind of limits would help protect them from those risks, whether that's loneliness or other kind of uh, risks to their well-being. Understanding their viewpoint and making them feel heard and understood is what they need most in terms of feeling safe, cared for and connected. Of course, though, adolescents are far from a homogenous group. And how does this balance shift when a particularly young person finds it particularly difficult to find that community, those connections from family in school? For example, maybe they're a young person with a disability or an LGBTQ plus adolescent. What role then do digital connections play in the life of an adolescent? I think the challenge with that becomes is, yes, it opens up a, a possibility, but it, it can sometimes create a sense of dichotomy that in this online world, I can be a different person. And then when I come off and I'm interacting with people face to face, I have to be somebody different. So I think it's important for us to be mindful. Yes, online communities can really help young people feel that sense of belonging or we want them to feel that across their life, not only, you know, online. So what can we do then to try and foster better connections offline for young people? I think that's a really good question, because why is it that they're not able to find that at home, at school and in their in their communities? And I think that definitely what we create online can also be created in person as well. For young people, having recreational activities, having clubs, having spaces that are for them, where they can have structured and safe interaction with peers, also with supportive adults. Those are all really important things. So I think it's just having a balance that it's not only digital spaces we're creating for them, but being mindful of, you know, at, at home, um, at school and in, in community, that they are also having those places to feel safe, belonging and to be able to engage and do things that they enjoy. If we imagine a particularly young person whose social well-being needs to be taken into account, how do these different factors vary depending on where in the world that young person is? You know, internet access and digital connectivity isn't the same around the world. Roughly two-thirds of children and young people age 25 or younger don't actually have internet access at home where only 6% of children and young people in low-income countries have internet access, 87% of the same population group do in high-income countries. So the approach and the issues that we might be facing in these different contexts among these different subgroups also might be different. What does the research show us that we can do to foster connectedness in young people? When it comes to fostering connectedness, there is a lot that we do know and that we can draw upon. Uh, we know that caregivers and schools are really important entry points uh, for 
building and strengthening connectedness, and so is the community environment. Where caregiver connectedness might not be in place at home, and home life is challenging for an adolescent, then school becomes even more a really critical space for impacting well-being of adolescents. And community, especially for adult school adolescents, has a huge impact on well-being of young people. And when we think about communities, that encompasses not only where adolescents live, play, study, but also the online spaces where they spend time in. The importance of including connectedness, deliberately strengthening young people's relationships with family and peers is and should be a priority for investment and effort. If we want to see change in some of these trajectories for health outcomes, and if we want to improve them. So then what more research do we need in order to act as well as we possibly can to support young people in their connections? I think that the research needs to reflect the reality and the changes that we're seeing in the lives of young people. So particularly with digital and social media, better understanding of how we can leverage these tools, these technologies, these spaces for improving the quality of connections that young people have um, and understanding how this might also negatively impact the connections they have with family, with peers, with their community is something important for us to better understand if we want to achieve better health and well-being outcomes for this population group. You've mentioned how important schools are in fostering connectedness and social well-being in young people. Does this also go the other way around? How does connectedness feed into educational outcomes for young people? When young people feel safe, when young people feel they belong, when young people are supported, then obviously they will be able to do their best learning, be able to do their best work. It's academic outcomes, but looking at school as a place that's building these skills for them to not only succeed academically, but I think to thrive in all aspects of their life. When you think about these themes of connectedness, how do they relate to your own life and to your own adolescence? When I look back and when I think about my own trajectory, that feeling of connectedness, my relationship with those around me, I would say probably is one of the most important and shaping factors that I would feel cared for and supported by my family, um, that I had peer groups and activities where I felt like I could belong and that I could engage and contribute to, and the ability to have friendships and also relationships with other supportive adults shaped so much of my own view of myself within a community, within society, uh, my role. You know, when I did face challenges and difficulties, these were definitely sources of support that were very important for helping me overcome those, helping me navigate those. I think connectedness, when I think about it in my own adolescence, was very critical. You're now a parent yourself. How do you try to foster connection and community for your children while simultaneously safeguarding them from some of the harms of the digital world that we've spoken about? From the view of being a parent, there comes a lot of unknowns with the digital world, but that's okay, I think. Remaining aware is very important for helping to set those limits, helping to protect them and guide them, but also in in making sure that they feel connected and supported as well. Ensuring that we have those spaces as well for our children to connect with peers in person, at school, 
um, and to develop those types of relationships, even with other supportive adults, is really, really important. That was Joanna Lai. And that's it for our first episode in this series looking at adolescent well-being. This episode was produced for the BMJ by myself, with support from the Fondation Botnar and PMNCH, the Partnership for Maternal, Newborn and Child Health. And make sure you're subscribed, because still to come in our next episodes, we're investigating the unique issues and solutions in young people's health and education, themes we've already touched on today. Until then, thanks for listening. I'm Adam Levy.